As a medical professional, you're probably consumed by your work. Because of that, you likely miss out on big opportunities to protect and grow the wealth you work so hard for. Luckily, through passive real estate investing, you can place your capital in the hands of trusted syndicators who do all the legwork while you sit back and let your money work for you. Syndicators like Ascent Equity Group. Ascent Equity Group is led by three medical professionals turned full-time real estate investors who have secured a quarter of a billion dollars in assets in just three years. And their latest opportunity, Sunrise and Chandler, is open now. Sunrise and Chandler is an exciting 177-unit value-add multifamily opportunity in the affluent city of Chandler, Arizona. This Class B asset in a Class A location was secured at a significant discount and is already cash flowing out of the gate, with 89% of the units still in need of renovation. Sunrise and Chandler is close to meeting its capital raising goal and will be closing soon. So if you'd like to learn more, visit ascentequitygroup.com forward slash best deal to schedule a call. That's A-S-C-E-N-T equitygroup.com slash best deal. This opportunity is open to accredited investors only. Don't fall in love with your deal. Every time I see somebody do this, they end up making mistakes because they ignore warning signs, whether that's the stage of the market that we're in or the counterparties or the financial numbers. So I think that's really critical. It's that time of year again, tax season. How are you doing on tax season? How's that treating you so far? Well, if you have a lot of receipts and you're organizing things like your income and expenses and creating reports, and you're also trying to keep up to date with a new tax reform this year, there's a lot of deductions that we can take to maximize return, and there's a lot of strategies that we need to make sure we're aware of. Are you optimizing for the new tax laws? Well, our sponsor, Stessa, teamed up with the top real estate CPAs to offer you the ultimate rental property tax guide and I've read it. This is the ultimate rental property tax guide. I'm talking about they've got everything covered from opportunity zones to entity selection to establishing a home office, travel expenses, what type of travel expenses are deductible, real estate strategies, tax strategies, capital improvements versus repairs. I mean, this is the ultimate rental property tax guide. And you can get it for free by going to stessa.com forward slash best taxes. You have to sign up for an account, but the account is free. So when you sign up for a free Stessa account, you will get this guide. This is worth its weight in gold for sure. Go to stessa.com, S-T-E-S-S-A.com forward slash best taxes. And when you work with Stessa, Stessa is a tool that helps every rental property owner track, manage, and communicate the performance of our real estate investment. So it's going to save a lot of time during tax season, but then also through the rest of the season as we go and grow our rental portfolio and optimize that. So go to stessa.com forward slash best taxes. Get that ultimate rental property tax guide. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff with us today, Deanne O'Donovan. How you doing, Deanne? I'm great, Joe. Glad to be here with you and your best ever listener. Yeah, nice to have you on the show. And a little bit about Deanne. She is the president and CEO of AHP Servicing. She's got over 25 years of experience in real estate, financial services, asset management, mortgage lending, and residential loan servicing based in the Windy City, Illinois. So with that being said, Deanne, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? 
Absolutely. So in terms of my background, I started out in acquisitions working for a public real estate investment trust. So got great experience early on in how to underwrite and analyze and close a deal. And then I also went to work in 2008 for a regional bank and got some great workout experience there. A lot of experience running acquisition teams as well as workout teams and joined AHP Servicing about a year ago. We are a socially responsible investment company, so we're crowdfunded. Somebody can invest in our fund and the money that we raise, we then use to buy non-performing notes. So it's an alternative real estate play in this particular role. And then we work with the homeowners to try to reposition that debt and either settle the debt with them or modify it. And then George Newberry's was he the founder of AHP? George Newberry was the founder of American Homeowner Preservation, or AHP, and that company was founded in 2008 at the height of the Great Recession. And last year, he recruited me and moved into a chairman role, and then we started AHP Servicing to bring the servicing of our loans in-house. So we now have kind of two books of business, if you will. We've got the loan purchase and sale business, and then we've also just opened our doors to servicing for third parties as well as servicing our own loans. Oh, okay. Got it. Well, best of listeners, you can search George Newberry, Joe Fairless, and you'll hear George on a couple episodes. So, Dean, when you started in acquisitions working for a REIT and you said you learned how to underwrite, analyze, and close a deal, what are some takeaways you got from that experience in terms of underwriting and analyzing deals? Oh, that's such a great question. So what I would say is don't fall in love with your deal. Every time I see somebody do this, they end up making mistakes because they ignore warning signs, whether that's the stage of the market that we're in or the counterparties or the financial numbers. So I think that's really critical. I would also say make sure you're doing a sensitivity analysis on your pro forma or financial underwriting so that you give yourself some cushion in the deal everything doesn't go right. It's very easy to have the perfect deal on paper. It's much harder to have the perfect deal in reality. So make sure that you give yourself that vacancy reserve, a CapEx reserve, and stress test your own assumptions. I've seen all sorts of sensitivity analysis. What are some main components, and you might have mentioned a couple already just now, but what are some main components that a sensitivity analysis should I definitely think you need to build in a vacancy reserve, a CapEx reserve. If I'm underwriting a commercial deal, I'm also going to typically take it out three years and make assumptions on staffing costs and operating expenses and increases on the revenue side and rent, ancillary income, so that I'm really seeing if things go well, what does it look like? And if things go bad, what does it look like? and making sure that I know what the operating margin is going to be in all of those situations and what my cushion is on my debt service coverage. On the if things go bad, what will it look like? How do you know how bad to make the scenario? Because clearly if it's an apartment building, for example, and it's 100 units, if you make it 90% vacant, then that's bad and the deal's not going to work. So I imagine there's a balance or a line that you walk where it's like, okay, this is how it would go bad, but that's probably not going to happen. So we still should proceed, but I know I have this bad scenario in the back of my mind. So how do you reconcile that? You're right that it's very specific on the asset class. If I was doing a multifamily deal, 
I would probably be looking at, okay, what happened in the last recession, right? How long were things vacant for in my markets? And what did I have to do to adjust the rents in order to fill those units? Because I think that if you look back to that last recession, chances are we're not going to have one in our lifetime that's worse than that. So that to me would be your absolute worst case scenario. And then you kind of, I think from there, I'd back off it a little bit and say, okay, what do I actually think is going to happen in the next three to five years, right? The predictions are we're going to have a recession in 2020, but what do we think that's going to look like? What do I think interest rates are going to be? How long is my debt? So then you can kind of backfill what factors for my particular deal have variability that I need to understand that risk for and make sure I'm comfortable taking that level of risk. In 2008, you went to work for a regional bank and you got, as you call it, workout experience. As someone who isn't in the lending industry full time, but I work with lenders, obviously, you're talking about working out loans when people are behind. So you're figuring out how do you work out the scenario so they don't default and you don't have to foreclose on them. Is that correct? Yes and no. When I went to work, the company I worked for was Wintrust, their regional bank, and they acquired a lot of other failed banks from the FDIC. So Mm. they hired me after they acquired the largest bank failure in Illinois history. It was a company called First Chicago, and it was a billion-dollar portfolio. And I'll tell you, in the first 90 days on the job, I wrote off probably $50 million or more. What do you mean wrote off $50 million? I'll give you an example. There was one deal I was looking at where it had already defaulted. And when I took a look at the underlying security, the collateral for the loan, it was not a real estate deal. Uh In this case, the collateral was virtually worthless. It was worth maybe 10 cents on the dollar. So then you really have to get creative. Keeping whatever privacy you need to keep. But what could that be that they initially used as collateral that was perceived to be worth so much on a large loan, but then was worth 10 cents on the dollar. So in this particular deal that I'm thinking about, it was a bundle of life insurance policies and they had done an actuarial analysis, basically like the life insurance policies, the beneficiary benefit had been assigned to this company and they had done an actuarial analysis on basically when are people supposed to die. Uh And that actuarial analysis was incorrect. And there were a whole host of other things. They hadn't collateralized it right. And the reason that I think that's such a great example is it was a very clear example of people closing on a deal where they did not understand the deal. They didn't have sufficient knowledge of the industry. They didn't have sufficient understanding of what happens when that deal goes bad. How do you fix it? And what do I really have? to collateralize that loan. And I think that's relevant to any industry, right? But it's especially relevant to real estate when people are moving into a new asset class or dealing with different counterparties or maybe a different lender for the first time. You, you really need to understand how that deal is put together and mm-hmm. how that deal could unwind and what you're going to do if something goes bad. What an experience. First 90 days on the job, you started out quick. Did you know that's what you're getting into? It's 2008, so I imagine you knew the sky was falling, so that's probably what you're going to be focused on when you got I hired. did. I did know that the sky was falling, and previously when I'd worked for REIT, done large public company 
bankruptcy work and restructuring. So if we had a large tenant that went bankrupt, I would be the one working with our attorneys to figure out how do we restructure it? How do we rewrite the leases? What collateral do we need? What kind of margin do we want on the cram down on the debt or whatever it may be? And so that was a very helpful experience, but taking on a massive portfolio of primarily defaulted or in near default primarily commercial real estate, but also consumer debt and CNI deals. It was a lot of fun. Like I loved it, but it was a lot of balls in the air. Oh yeah. I bet that was an intense job. Yeah. And I would say you learn so much more by working out somebody else's bad deal than you're <laughs> ever going to learn doing a deal yourself on the front end because yep. you see everybody's mistakes. And I used to tell the guys on the team that were younger, you're going to be an amazing underwriter and you're going to be amazing at putting new deals together when the market turns because you've learned from all of these mistakes that these other lenders made over the last 10 years. That's mm-hmm. amazing experience. What are some mistakes you've seen that you've taken lessons from that you can share with us? Well, I was thinking about that in advance of this podcast because I think you asked really probing questions, which I very much appreciated. And one of the things that I think I've learned is the more you can figure out for yourself what your drivers are, the more you're going to figure out why do you like the real estate business and why do you like it part-time or why do you like it full-time? And for me, the reason I love it is I'm a builder. I love putting deals together. I love building teams. I love doing new business. I've launched a lot of new product lines, moved companies into new lending areas. And one of the appeals for me about AHP servicing was frankly taking a company that had a small book of business on the loan trading side and then this new business that they were starting up on the servicing side. And for me, that's a blast. But for a lot of people, the knowledge that they're going to be working 60 or 80 hours a week and there are all these systems to put in place is overwhelming and disheartening. But for me, that's what gets me up in the morning. So the more you can figure out what gets you up in the morning and how does that relate to what you do professionally and how do you want it to relate to what you do professionally, then it becomes play that you get paid for. Not that you're not working hard because I work very hard, but you're passionate about it. And that makes all the difference. So I think that's one thing. And then I think the other thing is being intentional about who you're doing business with and making sure that you're doing business with people that you can trust and people that you respect. Any tips on qualifying those individuals in advance of doing business with them? I'm a big believer in references and test drives. So if I'm looking at a new vendor, for example, we have a really robust diligence process, especially for critical vendors. And that includes talking with references and other clients because you learn so much more in a five-minute conversation than you're going to learn by going through their annual report and their SOC 1. Not that you don't need to do that, but you do need to also talk to people who have done business with them Mm -hmm. so that you make sure that you've got that DNA alignment between the organizations. And I'll tell you, that served me incredibly well in my career. As I've moved jobs, I've had coworkers and employees that have worked for me who've said, I want to go where you're going. And I've also had attorneys and other vendors that when I know I need somebody, that's the person I'm going to call because I've got that five or 10 year, 15 year trusting relationship with, and I know they're going to give me a straight answer. What's been the main challenge as CEO of AHP Servicing? I would say the main challenge was doing everything all at once. 
So in my first 90 days at the job, I had four different systems implementations or conversions I was working on. I was hiring a management team. I was closing out a fund. I was putting systems in place and understanding the processes and taking the reins over from George and picking up the relationships that he had developed over a decade. So when I would put my kind of company project list together, I kid you not, it was five pages long. <laughs> and so kind of prioritizing those things and making sure that they're all not just getting done, but getting done well and being done in a way that's going to create the infrastructure to take the company from five to 10 million to 50 million to 100 million makes a really big difference. Because once you've got that infrastructure and that scale and people understand how the company runs and you've defined that company culture, it will be much easier to take this company from 50 million to 500 million. When you have that five pages long list of things and you're going about prioritizing them, what type of thought process or system do you use to do that prioritization? What's the most critical? What order do things need to happen in? Then once they've happened, what do we need to go back and back test? What kind of people do I need to hire that I can delegate some of these things to and trust that they're going to keep them running? How much autonomy do I give them? And then how do I check back in a way that feels good for them rather than them feeling like I'm checking their work where it's truly kind of collaborative. I think that's incredibly important as well. I'm a big believer in collaborative companies. So I'd say those are some of the key things. Just as a refresher for best ever listeners on AHP, will you just give everyone a refresher on what you all do? I know you briefly mentioned it earlier, but it's a very cool concept that I think is a win-win for everyone. I just would love to talk about that a little bit. We actually internally have crafted a business model that I refer to as a win-win-win-win. Oh, okay. <laughs> There's an office episode on that where Michael Scott resolves conflict between two coworkers and he tries to get win-win-win-win scenarios. But you... Oh my gosh, I just yeah. saw that a few weeks ago. That yeah, was yeah. very funny. <laughs> so to answer your first question, what we do is we do a series of funds. So we have a current fund open right now and it's open to both accredited and not accredited investors. So they can invest in our offering for as little as $100. We then use the money that we get from that offering to go out and purchase defaulted loans. And then we work with the borrower to try to come up with a cooperative solution to their past due payment status. So if they'd like to keep the loan, we'll modify it, reduce the principal, reduce their monthly payments, and make it affordable for them so that they can stay in their home. If they've already vacated the property or they would like to get out from under the debt, the title is relatively clean. We'll take a deed in lieu of foreclosure. We'll bring that underlying collateral into our portfolio as real estate owned, and then we'll sell it. And we underwrite those loans on the front end so that we have a pretty good idea of if we have to take that asset back, what it's worth and what we'll be able to sell it for. And then the win-win-win that I was talking about, our philosophy is we are socially responsible. So we're trying to create funds that are good for our investors. So our investors get a return of up to 10%. We're trying to create solutions that are good for our borrowers where they get to modify or settle their debt and hopefully go on to rebuild their credit and have a good life. We're trying to do something that's good for our communities because nobody wants a vacant moldering, decaying property sitting next door while it's going through a two-year foreclosure process, right? That's terrible mm -hmm. for the community. 
It invites drugs, it invites vandalism, it's just awful. And then finally, we're trying to create a company culture that's good for our employees who really come to work knowing that what they do matters in somebody else's life. Yeah, I was waiting for their employees to be part of it. And if they weren't, I was going to add another win to your win, 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 win. But you got it covered. So four wins. What is your best real estate investing advice ever? I think my best real estate investing advice gets back to what we were talking about earlier, which is be deliberate and don't fall in love with your deal. Sometimes the best deal is the one that you never do. What I say to folks here is you have got to be willing to walk away from the deal if it no longer makes sense. And we just had a situation at the end of the year where we did that. Somebody tried to kind of cram us down literally on December 31st. And I was like, not going to happen. Sorry, guys, if you change your mind, let me know. What were some specifics on that that you can share? They kind of wanted to capture the upside after we completed our due diligence without crediting us for the downside where some of the loans were significantly less than they had indicated that they were worth. So they sort of wanted to have their cake and eat it too. And we said, that's not how we underwrite. That's not how anybody underwrites in this business. So if you can get your deals done that way, God bless, go do it. But we're not going to close and we're not going to be pressured to make that deal at year end. And they ended up coming back a week later. We just closed it. And I think we got to a place that was good for them and good for us. But you have to be willing to say no. And we had spent probably forty or $50,000 in due diligence. So Wow. But I'd rather not do a deal and eat that cost than do a bad deal that I spend 18 months regretting after I close. Right. Where does that cost go, that forty to fifty k in due diligence prior to making the transaction happen? When we're buying a loan, we're ordering basically three pieces of due diligence from third parties. One is a broker's price opinion or BPO. So that lets us value the underlying collateral. And we need to do that to make sure that we're buying the the debt at the right level, right? So that we've got cushion there. Then we order a title report and we take a very forensic look at the title to make sure that if there are any gaps in title, we can complete that curative work because the last thing you want to do is buy a loan and then find out that you can't foreclose, you can't take a deed or you can't modify it because somewhere there was a break in the title. So you can't prove clean ownership. Mm-hmm. And then we also order a tax report so that we can see if there are any tax due taxes because those are typically credited against your purchase price when you close. Okay. So if you've got a big deal, so let's say that's $300 a loan all in, rounding up there. But if you're doing that for every loan and it's a big enough deal, those dollars add up. Got it. We're going to do a lightning round. You ready for the best ever lightning round? I am ready. All right. Then let's do it. First, a quick word from our best ever partners. Stessa is the essential tool for tracking your rental properties, and it's going to save you a tremendous amount of time during tax season. Stessa organizes all of your rental property financials and automatically creates all the reports you need to file your tax return. And Stessa teamed up with the top real estate CPAs to offer you, best ever listeners, the ultimate rental property tax guide to help you maximize your deductions. Get that copy when you sign up for an account that counts free. So get the copy by going to stessa.com forward slash best taxes. That's S-T-E-S-S-A dot com forward slash best taxes. Are you ready to close more deals and officially seal your financial freedom? The Dwellin Show with Ola Dantis discloses the most innovative real estate investing strategies to kickstart your quest to financial freedom. Go listen at www.dwellin.com forward slash show. 
That's D-W-E-L-L-Y-N-N.com forward slash show. Okay, best ever book you've recently read? I would say The Alchemist by Paolo Kahlo, and I go back and read that every couple of years. Why every couple of years? Because I think you get different things out of it. So it's a very simple story. It's a quick read, but it's kind of a classic hero's quest story about finding your destiny. So it's something that not only have I come back to, but I've given that book to more people as gifts over the years than probably any other book. Best ever transaction you've been a part of? Well, I would say maybe the deal that we just closed that I was referencing, not because it's the best deal that I've ever done, but I think it was, I'm training a couple of new traders right now, and I think it was the best deal that they're going to see in terms of the discipline and the other things that we've been talking about. Yeah, a case study in real life, they're working through it. Exactly. What's a mistake you've made on a transaction? A mistake on a transaction? Well, I think getting pretty far down the line on a deal with a new counterparty and then discovering that they're just not reputable in terms of how they do their deals. One of the things that I feel very strongly about is I do not retrieve my deals. If I tell you I'm going to buy something from you, I'm going to buy something under the terms that I agreed to. So for me, that's a really big pet peeve when somebody... (laughs) Do you invest personally in real estate? I do, but in a small way. I've got some single family rentals, but they're all passive. I'm so busy with my day job that I would love to have time to do some multifamily or other asset classes, but right now... You got your hands full. The reason why I ask that is in your personal investments... When you agree to buy it for X, I'm sure during due diligence, something comes up. Something must come up where it's like, wait a second. They weren't being dishonest. It's just due diligence, inspector report, something comes up. So in that scenario, did you just say, hey, I'm going to agree on the initial price, all good? Or did you go back and say, let's knock it down a little bit? Or did you just say, not buying it? There's something material that comes up on due diligence. Absolutely, I think it's appropriate to go back to the table. When I say retrade, I'm really talking about somebody who kind of gets to the finish line. There's no communication along the way. And then suddenly they're like, well, I'm not going to close unless I get X and Y in addition to what we agreed on. Or they try to knock the price down without having a justifiable reason for doing that. So um, I view that as distinct then. The whole reason you do your due diligence is to see, did I price it right? Best ever way you like to give back? Really through HP servicing. I love the business model. It's one of the reasons I joined the company and it feels amazing to go to work knowing that you're doing a good thing. How can the best ever listeners learn more about what you all are up to? They can connect with me directly at ceo at ahpservicing.com. They can check us out online on our website at www.ahpservicing.com ahpservicing.com or they can give us a call at 866-AHP-TEAM. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Deanne, and really enjoyed our conversation from the lessons you learned starting out working for a REIT on underwriting and analyzing deals to the regional bank that you worked at and the example of when you talk about the first 90 days and you wrote off $50 million or more and discussing that and as well as obviously what you're doing now you and your team at ahp certainly a win-win-win-win scenario with your business model and really enjoyed our conversation great catching up hope you have a best ever day and we'll talk to you soon thanks so much joe i enjoyed it as well
Are you ready to close more deals and officially seal your financial freedom? The Dwellin Show with Ola Dantis discloses the most innovative real estate investing strategies to kickstart your quest to financial freedom. Go listen at www.dwellyn.com forward slash show. That's dot com forward slash show.